I received a text a couple of minutes ago from my friend Nate who said that my um, Ken Bone game was strong this morning, so. <laughs> the college students aren't here or else um, that would have been a louder laugh. They're all on break. Well, uh, good morning, everybody. And Merry Christmas. Happy, wow, that is a sturdy stand. Um, I, uh, I can do this. <laughs> I can do this. Well, I have a bad Christmas memory. <laughs> when I was about, I don't know, like nine or ten, it was the Christmas Eve service. And for my family, Christmas is usually a work weekend, which is cool. And uh, we take off other weekends of the year. And uh, back at City Church Central, we had updated to the latest stage of development technologically, which at that point was the little clickers where you could just hold it in your pocket and you could click to your next slide. Fortunately for the pastor's kid, that clicker had a little laser on it. And I was an imaginative child. So during the week, I'd take the laser and run around the church and drive Chris crazy. And I'd just be like, <laughs> and I, for whatever reason, decided that this would be fun to also do at home. So I took the laser pointer home with a little clicker. And I'm going around the house, <laughs> up until December 23rd. And then I put it down somewhere. It's not a big house, but it's got a lot of nooks and crannies. And so I, we got a call from my dad. Where did, Peter, where did Peter put the clicker for the PowerPoint? And my mom's like, Peter? Yeah? <laughs> did you put the clicker for the PowerPoint somewhere? <gasps> Maybe. <laughs> so we went into full-on find-the-clicker mode with like two hours left to go before the Christmas Eve service. And my Italian grandmother, whose name, hand to God, is Joni Pacioni, was going around the house... <laughs> was going around the house praying to St. Anthony, who's the, uh, the saint of lost things, going, St. Anthony, come around, help us lost what can't be found. St. Anthony, come around, help us find what can't be found. I have to admit, I don't really remember if we found it, but now the slides are controlled by the genius Jonathan in the back. So unless we lose Jonathan on Christmas Eve, I think we'll be okay this year. Um, anyway, it's difficult, as my dad has mentioned the last couple of weeks, to... Um, preach at Advent because you've only got two stories. And uh, if you live a good, long, healthy life to, you know, the age of 80 and you're a pastor, you've got to pull off like 60, maybe 65 if you're good, Christmas services off of these two texts, four Advent weeks a year. What are you supposed to do about this? Well, I would like to suggest that there are actually two and a half Advent stories in the New Testament, that two and a half, shall we say, of the gospel writers record the nativity of Jesus. And of course, there's Matthew and Luke, right? And we love Matthew and Luke. Matthew focuses mostly on Joseph. Luke focuses mostly on Mary. And it's sort of like you open up and you do the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, and then he starts talking about Herod, and you're like, oh, what a nasty, nasty king. He's like the heat miser. And then, like, the wise men come, and you're like, yay, wise men. We love wise men. Everybody loves wise men. And you get to Luke, and there's the shepherds and the angels, and you're like, oh, it's so beautiful. My heart is very warmed. And then you get to the Gospel of John. And John goes, in the beginning was the Word. And you go, hmm, 
feels like kind of an irrelevant fact. And then he goes, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and you go, that doesn't make any sense. And you eventually get down to, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, which is, believe it or not, John's way of telling the Christmas story. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But by that time in the prologue, there's so much like light and word and life stuff going on, we're all turned around. So that's what I'd like to approach today, is to turn us around to John as an Advent story. Because John, unlike Matthew and Luke, does not tell an Advent narrative. He gives us an Advent theology. John is concerned that we would get the deeper meaning and the bigger picture behind Advent. We'll call Matthew and Luke a bottom-up view. Matthew and Luke tell you what is going on on earth while Christmas is happening with the king and the shepherds and the angels and the wise men and all the stuff yeah, we love. And John, on the other hand, is kind of a top-down view. This is what's going on from God's point of view when the Christ child is born. So if you go to Christmas at Matthew or Luke's, Uncle Matthew or Uncle Luke, imagine you take a non-Christian friend to a Christmas party with the four gospel writers. Mark shows up like half an hour late, but Matthew and Luke, they do Christmas right, you know, with the angels and the wise men, the shepherds and whatnot, and they're wearing red and green, and they're listening to Frank Sinatra, as one always does, and then there's John in the corner. You know, Matthew's an ex-tax collector, and Luke is a doctor, so I don't know, maybe they have the funds to, like, throw a nice party, and, uh, but, but John, John is the disciple that Jesus loved. That's what he calls himself in his gospel. Anywhere you see the disciple Jesus loved, church tradition tells us that that is St. John, and he's an ex-fisherman. And if you sit down next to Matthew or Luke at the dinner table and you go, Merry Christmas, they say Merry Christmas, and you go, so what's going on? Matthew and Luke start off with, well, recently, and they tell you a story. But if you sit down next to John, who's a genius, he'll go, I've been thinking recently. And then he kind of loses you with the word and the word and the life stuff. So that's what we're going to look at. So if you would turn with me to page 860 in the Bibles we provide, and read verses uh, 1 to 5 and then 9 to 14, they sound something like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That doesn't make any sense. He was with God in the beginning. I feel like he already said that. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You might have, or the darkness has not understood it. Jump down to verse 9. Nothing against John the Baptist, but he's irrelevant to the sermon. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And happy new year. So John is giving us a radically different perspective on the Christmas story. Uh, I was born in Princeton, New Jersey which is a little island in a great sea of New Jersey. But Princeton's awesome. And um, one of the heroes of Princeton, and therefore one of my heroes, is Albert Einstein. Einstein lived on, Alex on Mercer Street. Aw, hi, buddy. 
Einstein lived on Mercer Street. He'd get lost all the time, so his wife had to paint his door red. Man was a genius, couldn't match his socks. And um, Einstein gave us a radical paradigm shift in the beginning of the 20th century. He radically altered the very idea of perspective, and he did it with what we call the theory of relativity. So Einstein, if you have seen Interstellar, you know this very well, Einstein showed us that time and space are actually relative. Like before, when we agreed with Isaac Newton, we thought space and time were absolute. He called them absolute space and absolute time. But as it turns out, space and time are relative, and the, the real constant in the universe is the speed of light. So when Einstein was a kid, his biographers tell us, he used to ask this cute little question to himself, what would you see if you were moving at the speed of light? And as it turns out, the theory of relativity suggests, you would watch the thing in front of you get smaller and smaller and smaller. So at nine-tenths of the speed of light, if you're looking at a train, the train is half its size. And then when you hit the speed of light, it just ceases to exist. It just disappears. Isn't that crazy? Who would, I mean, that's like one of the most ridiculous things. If you speed up, everything else looks different, like materially different. Evidently, if you can go fast enough, long enough, you will not age. Well, you'll age, but you'll age much more slowly than everybody else. So, if any of you are trying to fight on death, go on a rocket ship. I don't know. Perspective was radically altered by Einstein. Einstein managed to give us a perspective on what, it would, on what you would see if you were moving at the speed of light. Of course, you never can move at the speed of light because then you just cease to exist. But I would like to suggest that so it also goes with John. That John, in some profound sense, is giving us Advent at the speed of God, as I have said, which is kitschy, but I like it. Advent at the speed of God. John manages to give us God's perspective on Advent, the way Einstein manages to give us light's perspective on the world. And so when John looks at the Christmas story, what he doesn't see is a little baby in a manger and some wise men and angels and shepherds. John sees the creation of the world. In the beginning was the Word. God is outside of relative time, outside of relative space. God is like an author who can step away from the book and look at the whole thing, and John is standing there with him. So when John goes to tell us the story of the Christ child, he starts from the beginning. He sees the Word, and the Word's there with God, and he sees the whole world coming out of the world, that, of, of the Word. It's a curious vision. John wants us to see, I suggest, Jesus in Genesis, and Genesis in Jesus. He goes all the way back to the beginning of time. That's God's perspective on this. Jesus is a new beginning, just in the way Genesis was the beginning. So, John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. I love how redundant that is, just in case you didn't get that. Through him everything was made. And if it's been made, then it was made through him. Nothing that's been made was made without him. In him was life. And the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen? Amen. So, if you line up the book of Genesis translated into Greek with the book of John translated into Greek, you would notice that they start with the exact same words. In the beginning. In Greek, en arche. John makes an explicit literary reference to Genesis to start to invoke and call Genesis back into his Christmas story. And if you remember the book of Genesis, 
Can we get the Genesis text up? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Notice here, God speaks a word, and the word brings life. And if you remember, all the way to the last day of creation, when humanity is created, God says, let us make man in our image. The creation story ends with life. You have God, who speaks a word that brings light, that brings life. And John has the word that is the life of, that is the life that is the light of all mankind. It's the same chain. The word brings light, brings life. John is trying to say that Jesus is the beginning of a new thing. See, in Genesis, you have God who speaks the word, let there be light, so that there is real light, so that there is real life. But John is suggesting that Jesus is a word that is spoken to you and to me to illuminate what it means to live life in the Spirit. And the crazy thing is, the really ironic thing is, is that if you keep reading through the Gospel of John, that's what you'll get, is a word that's meant to illuminate life in the Spirit. Genesis, Jesus, John's own Gospel. They are words that bring light, that bring life. That's what John is looking at. That's what John sees from God's perspective. Now, a curious thing is that the word uh, for create in Hebrew, bara, does not quite mean uh, in what, what create means to us in English. I don't know about you, but when I think of create, I think of something out of nothing. There's nothing, and then you bara, you create something, and pow, there's something else. But curiously enough, the word for create in Hebrew, bara, means something closer to bring order out of chaos. So if you want to create an army in Hebrew, if you want to bara an army in Hebrew, you go into a town, you take a bunch of shabby men, quite like myself, you whip them into shape, which nobody has, and then you send them out to war. And you have taken the disorder of a town and you've turned it into the order of a battalion. You create the army. You create the battalion. That is the story that's being told in Genesis. God brings, uh, God creates. God brings order into chaos. Word into light into life. That's what's going on in John. Order into chaos. Word into light into life. Of course, the difference is that Genesis does not name Jesus. Genesis doesn't bring out Jesus explicitly, even though that's what John is hinting at. Have you ever noticed that God was there all along? Have you ever had one of those moments in your life where you look back and you go, I'm starting to think that might have been a God thing. So when I was in eighth grade, I didn't do so well in Spanish. Anybody else? No? Just me? Okay. Didn't do so well in Spanish. Didn't really like my teacher. I was super over it. As you can tell, I was a bit of a difficult student in middle school. So when I got to high school, I didn't get into Honor Spanish 9, how dare she? <laughs> but I did get into Honor's Latin 9, so I dropped the Spanish, took the Latin, and started singing in an a cappella group. Anybody who knows me relatively well knows that I sang in an a cappella group in college. And anybody who knows me who's relatively well is really sick about hearing about that fact. <laughs> but it also turns out that Latin and Greek have, identi have identical uh, grammatical structures. So if I had actually gone with what I thought you know, I should have been doing, which is doing better in Spanish in eighth grade, I wouldn't have ended up singing in college or preaching here now. Wouldn't have had the Greek to have the Bible to have the sermon. It's funny, the way you look back, that God is able to redeem and change things. I think God maybe was kind of like, you know what? Let him not do so great in, honor, in Spanish 8. No, I'm just kidding. Kids? 
bad theology. No, no, no. You ever notice that God was there all along? God's able to take something that you kind of thought you knew what was going on. You thought you knew all the dynamics. And by the end of it, you realize that it had far more significance than you thought in the beginning. John's going, the next time you look at Genesis, why don't you look for the word? The word who brings light. The word that gives light. Why don't you take a look for Jesus in the beginning? Because when Jesus starts over again, he's going to be doing the exact same thing. Maybe that's why Matthew and Luke have to use so many prophecies when they talk about Jesus. They want to let you know that God was there all along, that Jesus was there all along, that the whole Old Testament. Luther talks about the Old Testament as the swaddling cloth of Christ, that maybe the Old Testament is giving birth to Christ the whole time the way that Matthew and Luke think Jesus is given birth to, the way that John implicitly says the word, the words are made flesh, they're made into a person. And then he says, all things are created through him. I love that. God has been there all along in every atom of creation, in every moment of history. All things were made through him, with him, for him, by him. All things hold together in him. He's the unifying factor. He's the instrument through which all creation was made. He's the one thing that creation always comes back to. So in 1950, by the time he had moved to Princeton, Einstein started working on something called the unified field theory. The unified field theory was an attempt to take all the other physical forces of the universe and reduce them to one physical force, one equation that would explain every physical phenomenon in the universe. People thought he was crazy. Most people had been really taken by quantum physics at this time. And so at the end of his life, he is, as he says, retracing the lines that God has already made. That's what he called physics, tracing God's line after God has already written him. There he is, about two miles from the place I was born, scribbling away on a blackboard that is still preserved on an equation that nobody quite knows how to crack. And he's looking for the one theory, the one equation that will hold it all together. I would like to suggest that for Christians, Jesus is the unified field theory. Jesus is the field that holds all creation together. The word word is a very vague word, ironically. I hear what I just said. The word word is a very vague word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and we're like, which word? You know, there's a bunch of words. Well, for ancient Greeks and ancient Greek philosophy, the word was that which gave order to the universe. So the word cosmos in Greek, the exact same word as cosmos in English, actually just means the thing that has order. Cosmeo in Greek means to give order to something. Cosmos just means the ordered thing. And when the ancient Greek philosophers are trying to figure out what orders this whole thing, like what orders the crazy mechanism in the universe, they posited that there was something behind it, something that gave it order, and they called that thing the logos, the word. Logos is the word from which we get logic. So it is the word being the word that makes the world the world, the cosmos the cosmos. The, lo the Logos gives order to the universe, and the universe is just the ordered thing. So when John goes, in the beginning was the Word, all things were made through him, and his name is Jesus, I think what he's saying is, there ain't nowhere you can go where God can't get to you. All things come to being through him. I have a bunch of hippie friends who like to take blankets and like look up at the stars and they think it's very sort of existentially romantic and calming, but it gives me an acute anxiety because you sort of look up at the stars and you're like, that's just a whole bunch of nothing. 
Like, there's nothing out there. And if I go out there, doesn't my, like, head explode or something? I saw that James Bond movie. Was it going? You know? And, like, I don't know. Uh, if Sandra Bullock has that hard of a time making it back, I'm not sure I'm really going to be able to make it back. You look up there, and you're like, that's a bajillion million miles of burning balls of gas, like Pumbaa said. I don't know how to survive that. Isn't it true that if the Earth goes, like, a little bit that way or a little bit this way, closer to the sun, we either just, like, totally burn up or totally freeze out? What if that happens? Because I am definitely not keeping this thing together. But then, if it's true that all things are made in him, through him, and for him, if it's true that Jesus is the word, the same personality that walks through the Galilee, same personality that heals people, same personality that gives himself for, on behalf of whole mankind, that's the thing ordering all of that stuff. It doesn't really relieve my acute anxiety, at least not right away, on the blanket with my friends looking up at the stars. But I think it begins to preach to me the thought that there's nowhere in the world where I can really escape that guy's love. There's nowhere in the world where I'm actually abandoned by his personality. I have a, a friend, her name's Kate, we went to breakfast this week, and we were kind of talking about this, and she said, don't you think it's bizarre that there's like total social unrest in the world, but there are also right angles? <laughs> so one more time. She's like, you know, the world is full of like disorder and lawlessness, and people are doing crazy stuff, but there's also just this profound order to the world. I said, yeah. She's I can't remember if I quite said his name is Jesus, but that's at least what I thought in the Blue Moon Diner on Thursday morning. Jesus is that order in the universe, that thing you can hold on to, that even the stars and the heavens witness to. The Old Testament has a lot about that, about the mountains declaring his glory and the, songs and the trees praising his name. He's got all the snow and storehouses up in the heavens. So if you'd send a little bit in a couple days, that'd be great. Um, there's nowhere you can go where God's love is not there too. You can make your bed in hell, David says, and he'll still find you there. So, I wonder if a couple people here today think that God can't manage to get to you. Like maybe you've been to church a couple times, or maybe you haven't, or maybe you've just been along live enough in America to hear the phrase, Jesus loves you. But that feels like a bizarre and irrelevant fact. Like whoever God or Jesus is, he's probably worlds away. I think John wants you to know that as long as you're alive on this earth, God can get to you. That God is reaching out to you. If you go, I don't think God loves me. I don't think God can get to me. John goes, you're alive, aren't you? You're here, aren't you? Your keister's in that chair, isn't it? God can get to you so long as you're still here. It reminds me of the way Paul says, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for all are one in Jesus Christ. Neither Jew nor Greek. Not the Hebrew scriptures nor the Greek philosophy can quite catch Jesus, but they're waiting for him, and in him they become one. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither life nor death, neither angels nor principalities, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How could it? He made it all. It's all the expression of the word of God. Nothing can get between you and God. He's the word. Even if you make your bed in hell, David says, he can still get you there. And I'm sure that there are a couple people here who feel like they've made their bed in hell and they're sleeping in it. See, if the creation story and John's prologue 
are both about a word that brings light, that brings life. That means, I think, that he's looking for people who feel like they live in God's silence and absence. People who feel like they're living in the dark. People who would say that I'm basically just the walking dead. The curious thing about Christianity is we know from Jesus that he came to bring light. So just because you're living, you still might feel like you're just dead inside. John's telling a story where God speaks to direct us. God gives light so we can see where we're going. God brings life to resurrect us from the dead. Isn't that really what we want anyway? Everybody just to be alive? I've got a friend who does young life ministry, and he has told me that if he gets a call from a mom and he goes, Johnny has been caught smoking weed at school, that usually when he has to meet up with Johnny, and Johnny's standing there and Johnny's going, I don't want to talk to this guy. I don't want to talk to this random pastor. I just want to be with my friends. My friend in Young Life tells me, he goes, Johnny, I heard you got caught doing some bad stuff at school. And Johnny goes, yeah. He goes, I think that's great. And Johnny goes, oh. Because <laughs> it tells me you're looking for something. And I think I know what you're looking for, actually. We're all looking for life. We're all out for life. Every junkie and adventuresome spirit and angsty writer, we're all looking for the same thing. We're all looking for the life. Maybe if you don't know the Christmas story, you don't know the Easter story either. But I just want to let you know that at the end of this book, Jesus comes back from the dead. He defeats death, hell, and the grave. The nativity story is the resurrection story just a couple chapters earlier. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Oscar Wilde did his undergrad at Magdalen College, Oxford, and he was studying Greek. And so they gave him the Gospel of John to translate for his exam. They give him like an hour. So he translates from the beginning, and he plows through as many verses as he can, and then at the end of it, they go, Mr. Wilde, your exam is over. You may now shut the book. And Oscar Wilde evidently looks up from the book and goes, oh, but I'm dying to see how it ends. Jesus comes back from the dead. The, light, the darkness does not overcome the light. The light shines in the darkness, and it cannot overcome it. This is the Easter story just a little bit early. It takes the light of the world, though, to see the connection between all the stuff we're looking for and Jesus Christ. That's the thing that neither Einstein nor the ancient Greeks could have predicted, is that the light of the world is a person, and that person is Jesus of Nazareth. That's like real revelation. This is the thing that John wants to make sure you don't miss, so he connects the dots for you as explicitly as he can. If you are looking for God's word, for God's light, for life in the spirit, look at Jesus. Don't go off running around the universe. Look at Jesus Christ. That baby in that manger, he means light and life for all of us, anyone who will believe on his name. See, uh, if you compare Einstein's eulogy to the eulogy of people like Thomas Aquinas or Augustine, people who were geniuses before him, you will notice that Einstein is praised for his imagination. That's why people thought he was a genius, because he could connect dots that nobody else could connect. He wrote the theory of relativity, and he died looking for the unified theory. He had this huge ability to see everything else everybody was seeing, but connect it in different ways. You don't have to be a genius to believe in Jesus because John has already connected the dots for you. You get to feel like you're a genius, in fact. Look at that, extra perk to putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You get to feel like a genius.
John has connected the dots for you. That's what he wants to make sure that you don't miss this Christmas. So, you might be going, all that perspective talk is really nice. And all that stuff on life is very interesting. What I'm really just looking for is a perspective on my own life. I don't really want to talk about life. I would rather just live one. And I get that Greek philosophy and logos theology sometimes feel a little distant. But John brings it home like this. He says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. What if your perspective on life becomes that one? What if it becomes, I'm a child of God. God has sought me and loved me and when he sheds light on you, you realize that your life is the life of a beloved child of God. My dad's a great dad, but he doesn't run the universe. Might think he does sometimes, but he doesn't run the universe. What if your dad's the guy that runs the universe? What if the guy that runs the universe like, likes you, maybe even loves you, and he's there to give you a life, an eternal life, that ends with you living in his house for the rest of forever? I've been living in my dad's house for a year now. I don't know if I could do that for the rest of forever. <laughs> but I'd be very happy to live with God, the beloved father as the beloved son. What if your life and your perspective is that one, that my life is the life of the beloved child of God? So how do you get there? You see, uh, God has no grandchildren, which has taken me a while to figure out. I think my whole life I've been a bit of an angsty young theologian. I wanted to talk about theology because I was trying to figure out what the heck was going on in all these church services and Jesus camps I was going to. And I think the thing I was struggling with is I couldn't figure out what my faith was about. Every time anybody preached grace, I felt like I was going to mess it up. Anybody else been there? That wildly ironic thought that when God, someone preaches grace, you think, but I'm definitely the person that could mess grace up. Remember what John says? He gave them the right to become children of God. Children not born of anything but God. If you put your faith in Jesus, that's the first miracle you'll ever see. Your faith is a gift of God. You are a child that God begets and gives back to himself. When you have faith in Jesus, you're invited into the life of God. Your faith is a gift of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. That's a remarkable thing. Faith isn't something that you get up the gumption for. You don't have enough chutzpah for faith, for faith, and then Jesus likes you. And you might feel this happening in this moment. God is starting to tug your heart towards Jesus, the light of the world, because you're seeing yourself in a bit, in a bit of a different way. It's not mind tricks. It's the truth. God is your father. God loves you, and he sent his son to give you light and life. Um, I'll invite the worship team up now. And uh, would you guys stand and pray with me as we start to end this? I don't know where everybody is at with faith here. You know, some days I don't even know where I'm at with faith. But maybe if you're approaching Jesus in a new way for the first time, um, you'd want to pray a prayer to give your life to him, to invite you into your heart in a definitive way. So I'm going to ask we would all close our eyes and bow our heads.
that we would all approach God together, whether we've approached God many times before or this might be the first time. If this is your first time looking at the light, the word that's become flesh, and you want him to be your light, you want him to be your word, you might pray something like this. Dear Jesus, I definitely do not know everything there is to know about you, but I believe that you were sent to save me. I believe that you were sent to give me life, that you came in the flesh of God's word, and that you have prepared an everlasting home for me. Jesus, I believe you love me, and because of that, I believe the Father loves me too. If you prayed that prayer, I would ask that you tell somebody. You can come forward as the worship continues for the rest of the service, talk to someone on the prayer team. You can approach somebody you know well or not that well. But please tell somebody. There are resources here to help you in your walk with Christ that you just started. For the rest of us, God, I pray that we would not miss what you want to say to us this Advent season. That the quaint story that some people think the Christians believe would become the foundation of our light and life. God, in the next couple weeks, would you empower us to be a light to Christ, the light of the world, to our friends, to our family. Would you be our light and comfort if Christmas is a hard holiday for us? Would you be with us, continue to shine on us and give us light from this day forth forevermore. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, come let us adore Him. Well, come let us adore Him, Christ the
it out to him. John chapter 1, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's what John said of Jesus. As we conclude our time today, I just want to encourage you to invite someone to come with you to Christmas Eve service. It'll be an abbreviated service and it's going to be a wonderful time where we're going to hear the truth of Jesus again. It'll be explained simply so that can, people can understand the true meaning of Christmas. I also want to make sure that all of us are sort of up to speed on the schedule for City Church as we move through Christmas into the new year. We'll have Christmas Eve service on the 24th. We will not have service on Christmas Day, nor will we be having Christmas on New Year's Day. It takes 130 people a week to pull off what we do, and we always give our teams New Year's, the first Sunday of New Year's off. But in line with that, I'll be sending out through email a video that will have a devotional for Christmas Day, and there will also be a video teaching for New Year's Day. Along with that, there will be some other things that will come to you through that email. So I just want to encourage you that as we move towards Christmas Eve, that you'll be inviting people to come here for the candlelight service. I also want to encourage you as you exit today, these cards will be handed out. Please use them to invite people to worship with us on Christmas Eve. John gives us his perspective on Christmas. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and the Word became flesh. And he dwelt among us. Do you know him? Have you accepted him? Let's pray together as we close out our time. And then if you would like to remain in worship, you can. If you would like to come forward for prayer, the prayer team is down here to pray with you and to pray for you. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for who you are to us. That you are God became flesh that dwelt among us that you are the Word of God made flesh, and that you are the light and the life for everyone who would turn their hearts to you. Jesus, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for what it means to us. And we accept it, and we receive it, and we believe it in Christ's name, in Jesus' name. And now may the Lord bless you, and may the Lord keep you. 
May He cause His face to shine upon you. And throughout this Christmas season, may He give you peace. In Jesus' name, in the name of the Prince of Peace, we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Let's worship together or come forward for prayer. Amen. Oh.
Jesus, you are my king. Jesus, you are my king. You're my king. You are my king. You are my king. Jesus, you are my King. Amazing love, how can it be to my King would die for me? Amazing love, I know the truth. It's my joy. Okay. 